Hey there, true listeners. This is Kyle from the Longbox Cast, and you're listening to another great Four Ride Radio podcast. For more great shows, check out fourrideradio.com. And while you're at it, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash longboxcast. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Well, hello there, Eric. Are you ready to rob a train with me? Indeed I am, good sir. Wonderful. Uh, Wonderful. I feel like I should really work on my British accent, (laughs) but I just couldn't help myself after listening to this audiobook. Indeed, yes. This... um this uh, the the recording, of course, not only set in uh, Victorian England, but uh, read by a British fellow. So we got the the full experience. Yes, it, it was actually um, listening to it was very um, surrounding. I guess is the way I would put it. Uh, the narrator, the British accent, uh, the, was just enveloping in the whole thing. It made me think I'm walking around the streets of London. And it also, at the same time, was a little bit hard to understand because it's a British accent. So. <laughs> there were well, a few times that if I wasn't really paying that close of attention, I might have missed something. Um, yeah, there's that. And then there's, of course, also the uh, heavy use of Victorian criminal slang that um, we'll have to, to talk about in more detail. But uh, that made it a little hard sometimes to follow, too, because every time you'd introduce a new phrase, you'd have to wait and say, okay, I know he's going to explain it, either in context or via narration. He's going to tell me what that meant, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I might have to wait for it. And then, of course, after that, you you hear it over and over again. You're like, okay, now I know what that means. But the first time he says, oh, yes, he's the, uh, what do you say, he's the best screwsman in town. Yeah, the screwsman. What are you talking about? What is that? Or, you know, uh, what's the lay? The lay was used throughout the entire book, and I don't know if it was truly ever explained. I think only uh, we via are... context. Yeah, you, yeah, you in, figure it in, out in based on context. It was the plan. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, you don't – there were some things that they specifically said. They're like, he said, uh, did you tool her? And then the narration, meaning did you use a wire to pick her pocket instead of using your fingers? Okay, oh, now I know what it means to tool her off, means to use a, a wire of some sort to pick her pocket. Okay, now I know. Because uh, I would have thought it was some sort of uh, sexual thing, probably if I <laughs> if you hadn't clarified. Right. Uh, but other times it's not it's not explained. So, mm-hmm. which actually kind of leads me right into one of the uh, one of my differences between the the book and film is that we do get those more of that slang and explanation in the book. In the movie, I think they chose to 
limit the amount of slang they used. They still did to keep it in the moment, but I, I feel they toned it down quite a bit. And when they did use the slang, they did it in such a way that the, either the context you know, made it just blatantly obvious. Right. And obviously, we were talking about the great train robbery. Oh, yeah, we should probably uh, mention that. <laughs> yes. Well, if you're, you know, if you're listening, you probably clicked on something that said the great train robbery, so you know. But uh, this was Michael Crichton's 1975 book, which was based off of an actual robbery that happened in 1855, and the film uh, which he wrote and directed in 1979, which is very cool that we're now seeing Michael Crichton not only write the book, but the screenplay and direct the movie, so it's like he could tell it two different ways but still get the same story across and it's very interesting and i very much so enjoy both of these for very different reasons yes yeah, so he's, he's definitely the the triple threat guy in this one he wrote the book wrote the screenplay directed the movie and um <clears throat> as far as i'm concerned i you know, hey spoiler alert to our final review but i think he did a good job <laughs> yes yeah i actually completely agree with you and uh this may be one of my top three for sure top five uh, Michael Crichton movies at this point now. Okay. So, all right. Um, anyways, so let's talk about the book and the fact that this is not sci-fi. It is not off. not not in the slightest. <laughs> not um, in the no, slightest. It, it's a it's a period piece set in Victorian mm-hmm. England. Yeah, and because of that. Um, it was a little bit off at first, and I'll tell you, I was never originally attracted to this when I first got into Crichton. It was obviously mm-hmm. when most people did after Jurassic Park came out in 93. And so I read things like Saphir and Timeline and Congo and all these great adventures. And it took me a long time. In fact, it wasn't towards the end to pick up the great train robbery because I'm like, uh, what do I care about this historical piece? But it's amazingly well written as far as the details. And I would love to believe the historical accuracies of what life was like in 1855. So so much of this book is explaining how people lived or why you did certain things, uh, mannerisms of the day. Yeah, it's very interestingly written. I, I really like the way that he chose to to write this novel because you have essentially it's it's told from the perspective of uh, recounting of his trial. You know, we're basically at Pierce's trial. And we're getting these recountings that, like, this person testified this and this person testified this, but then it jumps into the immersive story. So you're not getting it just third-hand from a person, but you're being led to believe that this is the narration of the testimony. So it makes sense that, you know, it's it's romanticized a little bit from each perspective and, uh, you know, it, it really – it makes the story flow while still having, as you said, quite a lot of historical information in it. There was only a very few times, and most notably when I was listening to the book as opposed to when I was reading it, when I thought, okay, maybe this this history lesson's gone on a little bit long, let's get back to the action, but only very briefly. And usually by the time I started to even think that, he had moved on or was about to move on and, and tell another part of the action part of the story. So it's really uh, unlike, you know, as we discussed with The Case of Need, where sometimes the medical stuff can really bog down the reading experience. I don't feel that the history in here, which is what he gives us instead of medical stuff, we, we get history. Um, 
I don't feel it bogs down the reading experience like it did in those previous novels. So I think he's, I think what we're seeing is him getting better at writing <laughs> as we go along, which is fantastic. You're right, and it truly is. And the book felt like a great historical travel through time in such a detailed life of what was in the mid-19th century. In fact, a little bit later, I'm going to have something for you, Eric, where mm-hmm. it is a fact or fiction. Because there were so many things he talked about in here that I thought, you know, is this real? I feel like I'm reading an actual history book the way he describes things so i had i looked up about half a dozen things just to see was this real of that time you know or is he just making this up and it was very interesting what i was able to find out so we'll talk about that a little bit later too um as far as the book goes i'm so glad that i read this now in its entirety because it's probably a favorite I would definitely go back and read this entire book again, 100%. I'd go back and watch this movie again, which is very interesting to me for something that was filmed and done in 1979, uh, but it just came across wonderfully. Yeah, it was definitely a very good uh, book, very entertaining, as well as, as you said, uh, somewhat educational, although we'll find out how educational that is when we play Fact or Fiction later. But uh, um, <laughs> you get that sense that you're you're picking up some knowledge while you're also getting a good story, and that's that's really the, the cusp of there is that it is a good story. It, it's a well-told story, and it's interesting and entertaining, and you you do start to – you get sucked into these characters a bit. Um, the the main character, the, the villain slash hero of our story is, of course, uh, Edward Pierce, the, the great train robber. Um, he mm-hmm. is the mastermind behind this. He is the, the person who is uh, – what are they saying? He's, he's the one who's got the, the put-up um, – to to he's somehow financing all this, and there's several points throughout the book where they question, like, okay, this is obviously costing him quite a bit. Like, why does he even need to do this? Um, and you get the sense, and it's never specifically stated, but you get the sense. I feel that he's doing it because he wants to be the only person who's ever done it. Right. You know, because at this point, nobody has robbed anything from a moving train. That's, no. that's the whole thing of this. Uh, you know, we've got trains that are going 40, 50 miles an hour, which is insanely fast for the time. Um, and the idea of, of pulling off a moving robbery, you know, on one of these super fast trains is just unheard of. And so even though it appears that he's got plenty of money in stockpile because he spends money so frivolously throughout this entire book to bribe people off, to, to buy equipment, to, you know, all this stuff. And he's living this, you know, he's presenting himself as this basically wealthy gentleman so you know he's got to spend some money to do that for clothes and and things like that so he's obviously got a stock somewhere (laughs) right this was more you feel like and i feel like the challenge uh, specifically in the book and interestingly enough the two main characters i would say in the book are pierce and agar Mm -hmm. um who in the movie are played by sean connery and donald sutherland and those are the actual names of the original people it was uh william pierce and edward agar were the two original of the four men it was actually four men who pulled off this whole heist Uh, i did find the proceedings of the old bailey which is london central criminal court system and they have them archived from 1674 to 1913 all online and so i was able to find the original proceedings when edward agar turned in everybody because in real life that's what happened and that's how this was all found out if it wasn't for edward agar they probably would have completely gotten away with it and nobody would have known uh anything that happened with any of the gold 
Wow. And we never would have had this story either. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, side note. Because again, I just was curious the how historically accurate this was. And this was relatively historically accurate because they did need to make copies of those keys. They did have this whole process. Now, the two other guys were people that worked for the companies because this was multiple banks, multiple companies that had gold they were transporting on this train. And like you said, there have been many other heists around this time that were worth a lot more. But this one was such a daring, fast train robbery, and it took a long time to plan. Uh, you know, this wasn't something that they just did in a month. This was a year of processing. This was, it was two or three months before they did this. It was four months before they did this. They broke a uh, guy out of jail named, uh, what was it? Willie was what his name was. Clean Willie, yeah. Yes, Clean Willie, because they needed a guy that could <laughs> climb walls and everything. Uh, so they're just, there are so many neat aspects, but that's what makes us great. And in the book, it is not until the 42nd chapter that we're actually robbing the train. And the book only has 52 <laughs> chapters in it. Yes. So that tells you how much buildup there is and that this is really like this is like a very detailed Ocean's Eleven caper. This is exactly how we're planning out our entire bank robbery, uh, train robbery in this case. So it's very fascinating. But when I looked back the second time, I thought, man, 52 chapters and we don't even get on the train to rob it till chapter 42. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Well, yeah, because uh, once you get to the actual robbery itself, it's told very much differently that a lot of times you see these uh, heist movies and such where they start out showing you the heist. And then they do flashbacks or something like that to show you the planning of it. Uh, but right. they want to get you hooked in with that action first and foremost. And this one doesn't do that. It gets you hooked in by good storytelling right from the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, both in the book and the novel. All right, but, but yeah, both the book and the novel. Uh, both in the book and the movie. <laughs> and the movie, what yeah. I intended to say. Um, <laughs> So even without us jumping straight to the actual heist, we still are engrossed in the story and we still want to find out, is it going to work? You know, is it going to happen? What's going to go on? Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, very interesting. I mean, it starts out the very beginning. We do get a little bit of action right at the beginning because we're seeing the, the beginning process of this. He's setting up. And this is one of the things I wanted to point out because throughout both the film and the book, we get this sense of kind of liking Pierce. You know, right. we think, hey, he's this, he's this suave guy, he's this uh, illustrious gentleman, he is uh, smart, um, but you do have to remember that he is also a criminal and not just a thief either. He, We know of at least two, in just in this book, deaths that could be directly attributed, not to his hand per se, but to part of his plan. You know, one of them definitely ordered by him, the other uh, a side effect of something he ordered. And right at the very beginning, we see this because he essentially hires this in the book. It's a kid to try to rob the train just you know, blatantly, like just just sneak aboard and see if you can pick the locks and, you know, have a go at it because he wants there to be an attempt so that he can strike it up in conversation later without seeming like he's just bringing it up out of thin air. Right. So essentially this kid dies so that Pierce can start a conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's important, I think, to remember that when you start romanticizing Pierce and think, well, you know what, though? But he did send this kid to what he knew was going to be at least jail. He knew this kid was going to be caught. He knew he had no chance of, of escaping. Um, and no. most likely he was going to get severely hurt, if not dead. And you can very easily, like you said, romanticize Pierce's character because it's just got almost this Robin Hood type feel to it. But you're right. He was ruthless. And there are multiple times, more so in the book than in the movie, where 
he is only thinking of self. And if somebody else gets hurt, somebody else goes to jail, uh, that's just such as life. His end goal is to be this great train robber. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't even think it's about the money per se, despite what he might say later. But I think it's about the committing of the crime and being the one who did it. Like, um, <clears throat> honestly, I, you know, you're led to believe, especially in the book, that uh, perhaps he did intend to get caught somewhat because he wanted to tell the story before then making his way out. Um, before escaping, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, you get this sense that I don't think he would have been satisfied if it had gotten away clean without anybody knowing about it because no. he, he wanted the story to be told. He wanted everybody to know how smart he was and how great he was at this at this robbing thing. And even in real life with the real character, he was not a good guy or anything by any means because he also – the reason that Ager came out – Ager was – after this all happened, the real life Ager was in jail for forged checks. And what was supposed to happen was the money that they robbed was – his part was supposed to go to his – the mother of his child, which I think her name was Fanny. And he found out that that was not happening. Pierce was not making sure she got paid while he was in jail, and he got really mad about this. And so that's why uh, he went to court and said, hey, I know who did this robbery. I was one of the four people, and that's how they got found out. And it was because Pierce just seems like even in real life was just not a nice guy. And, and so you do have to realize that. Yeah. There's a couple of moments in the book where you get a, you get a glimpse of the real Pierce, I think. I think throughout the majority of the of the book, we're seeing this affectation he's putting on. We're seeing mm -hmm. this persona that he's trying to present of this calm, cool, collected gentleman who is also a uh, master criminal. But there's a couple of moments when he snaps and you, you, the, the other characters are like, whoa, okay, let's not mess with this. And you, so you get this sense that they know that there's danger lurking right beneath the surface there. Mm -hmm. um, it really makes for a fascinating character because you do get this depth where you realize like, no, he is uh, straight up a criminal. Um, I think they went to even greater lengths in the movie to give us that sense when when dealing with Clean Willie. And part of that was, I think, because mm. they had made the choice. Um, something we'll, we'll bring it up right now because um, it's something that's noticeable. There's an entire character missing in the movie from the novel. One of yes. his crew just isn't there. <laughs> no. We have this man Completely named Barlow in the book who is this big man with a scar across his forehead, and he is essentially their driver and their muscle. Yeah, he, he's their getaway driver. And Barlow is a taxi driver, and it's one of the things in the book they bring up that might be a business that Pierce owned was a taxi company, and that's where he gets some of his money. Because they throw out a few different ideas of where they suspect Pierce got all of his money, and that was mm -hmm. one of them. And Barlow is his driver, and he's such a great character in the book because he gets mentioned, just like Pierce, by just the description of him. Every once in a while, people say, it was a man with a scar on his face, a big man with a scar on his face. And you know that that was Barlow. So he's intermixed throughout this entire story in the book, um, but not once in the movie. Yeah, they they split up some of the things that Barlow did in the book that needed to still happen to complete the story. They split it up between Pierce and Agar. Yeah. Uh, one of those things, specifically, is the killing of Clean Willie. Mm -hmm. Clean Willie, after, um, you know, during the planning stage, they need him, they, they get him to break out of what is supposed to be an unbreakoutable prison just so they can use him to pull this job. But it's not even the main job. It's just to get the keys. It's just to right. get a couple of the keys that they need. So they get him to break out of prison. They heal him up. They get him cleaned up. They, they take care of him so that he can do this job. 
But then after that, he gets picked up trying to do something else because his job is done. They're like, okay, here you go. Here's your you, – you signed on to get paid this much. Here's your money. Go. He knows there's something bigger going on. So he's you know kind of trying to, to stay in it. But he gets picked up by the cops, the, the crushers, as they call them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, you know, basically he's kind of has to give up some information in order to, to not go back to prison. He doesn't want to go back to prison. Uh, understandable, especially the way they describe uh, what goes on in the prison, the, the punishment that they're put through on the daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, so he, he gives them up a little bit. And this happens both in the book and in the movie a little bit differently, but pretty much the same. Right. Um, and so they have to they have to deal with him before he can hemorrhage too much information. And in the novel, that means that Barlow kills him. The muscle goes yeah. and kills him, and then he's just a dead body in an alleyway in the book. Yeah. yeah. And in the in the film, they let Pierce do it himself. Yeah. Pierce so strangles him, him and then walks away like it's nothing down a street, passing by everybody else, normal as can be. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. that's really the moment that you you realize, like, okay, at the very beginning of the movie, we saw him standing over the body of this guy he sent basically to his death to start a storyline mm-hmm. and to basically, like I said, to start a conversation. All he needed was an attempt, even a piss-poor attempt that had no chance, but he needed an attempt so that it could be brought up in conversation, so that it would be on other people's minds other than his own, so that he wouldn't be the one remembered as bringing up, like, hey, anybody ever try to rob your train? Right. Um, no, they would run, oh, yeah, this kid tried to rob the train the other day. Oh, really? That's interesting. Tell us more about that. Why don't you uh, describe in detail every security <laughs> precaution you have made? <laughs> and so that, and that's how the book begins and the movie begins. And you the movie does a better job of showing just how evil, conniving Pierce's character really is because he's the one who then strangles uh, Clean Willie. Yeah, and they and make it a little more clear right at the beginning in the movie that he was involved in that first attempt. They do, uh, yes. Right at the beginning because he walks right up to – he's right there waiting to see what happens. He walks right up to the body. Chase is like, yep, he's dead and walks away. Yeah. Uh, whereas in, in the book, Miriam, that's when we first see Miriam, yep. his girlfriend, whatever, and she asks if he is really dead. Like she actually is a little worried because she didn't realize that that's what was going to happen. So uh, just like in the book – and this is where it makes it for a great caper. Pierce never tells any one person the entire plan. Everybody knows some small part of it. And it's not till much later in the book when Agar finally, after they've got all four keys and they're testing him, when he realizes, oh, this is what we're actually doing. Yeah. <laughs> and Pierce is, is not exactly happy about him figuring it out either. Like, I think he no. wanted to, to keep it a little bit of secret even a little bit longer. Um, so he's not too happy with his partner in crime even knowing fully what they're after. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that, that compartmentalization of the information is part of what, what saves him. I mean, that's the reason that when they got Clean Willie, he was only able to give them a little bit of the, of the plan. And in the novel, they work that into a, a secondary storyline that's completely missing from the movie, probably cut for time, I would assume, where Pierce has to basically plan a second heist. And he doesn't have to actually go through with it or anything, but he has to make it look believable enough because now he knows that the cops know he's up to something. Mm -hmm. So he has to create this narrative to where they think he's pulling off something in Greenwich so that they go to Greenwich (laughs) and leave him be to do what he's actually doing. Um, So he has to concoct this whole other storyline. In the movie, they kind of skip that. They they just, they they don't let on that Willie gave them any information yet, that he was still holding out a little bit on them. So they, they don't get that far. 
No, you do realize that Clean Willie is working with the coppers, uh, but it, immediately the next scene we get rid of Clean Willie, so there's we don't have to worry about any of the book in the movie from there. Yeah, that whole little separate storyline, which was which was interesting in the book. I'm not saying that it was unnecessary. Um, it was definitely you know it, it showed again uh, how he was able to manipulate people. Especially, I thought the most mm. telling part in the book was the fact that you know he plans this, and you have this conversation between the two lead detectives, basically of. Well, maybe he wants us to think that he's going to Greenwich because he knows we caught Clean Willie, so he knows we know his plan. So now he's concocting this second plan to throw us off. <laughs> nah, he couldn't be that smart. No, it, he's, it's definitely in Greenwich. Like, you get this moment like, oh, man, they figured him out. Oh, nope, nope. They're not giving nope. him enough credit. They're not. They're underestimating his his intelligence, and thus, you know, that's the reason that they don't do it. But you get that moment where you're like, oh, oh, they figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because the Scotland Yard deducing. And uh, in the beginning of the book, they talk about the fact that robberies and stuff, you always think of it, and that was another thing that was a telling difference, as somebody who is an addict or, you know, bottom of the classes or something like this, mm-hmm. and Pierce comes across as just not. I mean, he's hanging out with bankers and company men and spending money, like we've said, left and right. So this is a, a higher up person. This is a person that already has money. So what's the point of robbing a bank? Where most robbers are people that need the money. So uh, it, they and and just in that scene, they also just don't give him enough credit, and so they don't think that he's smart enough to try and pull a fast one on them. Yeah, but it is it is kind of. Um I, I like that scene in the book when they're talking about it and they're thinking, mm-hmm. um, "Oh, could it be that he's throwing us, you know, on a, you know, trying to put us out on a different chase, and that he's still actually planning to do something?" Here? No, it couldn't be. Couldn't be that. Couldn't no. be that. And then they move no. on, and that ten- ends up being exactly what it is. Now, I will tell you that of all the keys we had to get, um, I believe it was Trance that that took the longest because we had to figure out what kind of a person he was and that he liked dog racing and we had to be his friend. Then we have to like pseudo date his daughter, and <laughs> there was so much involved in getting that one key. It took up chapters and chapters of the book, and it took up a decent amount of time too in the uh, in the movie. Yeah, the biggest uh, thing then, with uh, Trent's key was the fact that they didn't know where it was. They knew right, he had yeah. it. With all the other keys, they knew where they were. The two keys mm-hmm. that the rail station had were in the cupboard. They knew they were there. The other key. Uh, Fowler had said, I wear it on my person at all times. It's right here around my neck. So they knew where it was. It was just a matter of getting it off. Uh, We'll Mm -hmm. talk about how they managed that a little bit later. Anyways. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But yeah, with Trent, they had to not only figure out uh, where he he had it, and there's a couple of scenes where they, they work on that. So they know where he keeps it when he's got it on his person, but they don't know where he keeps it. Otherwise, like basically they just wanted to make sure that he didn't leave it at the bank when he left for the day. And that's mm-hmm. where we have another missing character uh, from the book that uh, Agar actually takes the part of in the movie. And in the, in the book, Agar is a locksmith. He's, he's a pick. He's a, uh, like a screwsman. He's a screwsman, twirler. yeah. Um, in the movie, they give him also pickpocketing skills because they completely eliminate this other character that Pierce hires to bungle a pickpocket attempt on Trent to make so that they can see where, you know, oh, he thinks he might be pickpocketed. Where does he check? Which pocket does he check to make sure that everything's still there first? Because it's going to be that key. You know, mm-hmm. the first thing he's going to check for is, oh, crap, do I still have that key? 
and that's exactly what happens. Uh, in the book, they, there's a completely different character who does this. That, that Pierce hires on and pays. And you, uh, you know what? I did not realize that. But you're right. That is a character that was not in the movie. Okay. I didn't, uh, you, got, you got one on me there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Teddy Burke was the character in the, uh, in the book. He was this known to be a good pickpocket. And they show you know, the scene is in the movie. The, the the whole scene of him pickpocketing this lady and then uh, Pierce coming up to him after the fact and being like nice pull and he's like what are you talking about I don't know what you're talking about oh, yeah. thanks and I like in the movie how they go <laughs> they go back to show you again exactly what happened in yeah in case movie. you missed so, it the first time in case yeah. you missed it here it is again and then and and I did miss it I didn't know exactly what they were doing and the second time oh sure shit I saw it and saw the yeah. handoff of it to his uh, fellow accomplice and everything yeah yeah I, I will admit I did see it the first time but only because I had read the book first. And so and I you knew were looking that, for oh, this is going to be the pickpocket scene. And I thought it was interesting because I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. But this is Agar. Like, I know from the IMDb page that this is Agar. This isn't Teddy Burke. So why is Agar doing this? <laughs> and so, it, and so and- it was stuck in my head immediately that, hey, this is, this is weird. Yeah, and it was one of the few variances that they did as far as uh, character introduction, too, because in the book, and even in real life, according to the court testimonials, Agar and Pierce met in a uh, in a bar, mm-hmm. is where they met, and they had known each other years previous and everything, yes. too. So, yes, yeah, so this, uh, this introduced uh, Agar's character very differently than it did in the book, but obviously needed to, since he's not only a screwsman, but also a pickpocket. He's kind of a, a man of all types, because in the end, he's also our getaway driver, because there is no Barlow. <laughs> yes. Well, and also they, they handle his capture quite a bit differently because in the book they stay true to uh, what you're telling me the, the actual story was. Um, Agar is picked up for forgery and it's basically, um, you know, he's in jail, but he's not the one that ultimately gives them up. Uh, he's in jail for forgery, yes, but he is caught and brought in to even talk about it because somebody else is caught trying to, uh, uh, what do they call it, bug hunting, you know, just some other random person, not, not even a, a person who we've introduced in the story yet, but somebody who happened to know Agar in the biblical sense um, previously and had had known that he was involved in this in this heist and she gets caught you know doing what they call bug hunting basically she finds a guy who got so pissed drunk they passed out and is literally just robbing this guy who's passed out in the street um, which somehow they think of that as being a worse crime than anything they say that bug hunters are the lowest of the low yes, like, well, it looks to me that they're just taking advantage of a situation where they've got nothing and this idiot <laughs> with, with something in his pockets has <laughs> drunk himself into a stupor on the street. I mean, come on. He almost deserves to be robbed at that point. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that being said, you know, they catch her and she's claustrophobic. Yeah, that, that's a, a key element to the story is the fact that she's claustrophobic. So she starts just, I'll give you this, I'll give you money, I'll give you, I'll give you this. I, I got information. I can, t-, you know, she's doing anything she can to get out of this interrogation room because she can't stand the confined space. Yep. So, you know, they they make that quite a bit different because in the film, then he's caught immediately after the robbery because. As in the book, he's wearing the clothes that Agar was wearing in the coffin, which they used to sneak him onto the train. We'll get back to that. Um, But in the movie, they point out something that I thought was interesting because they didn't do this in the book. And it makes sense to not do it in the book. But it made sense to do it in the movie so that he could be caught this way, so that they could cut out those extra chapters and and pare it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, 
most of the time, when, when people are buried, they're not usually buried in clothes that fit the way we traditionally think. They're usually put on from the front, more like a hospital gown, and it's because it's easier to put that type of clothing on a body as it is to to like get okay. We got to get them propped up. We got to get the shirt over their head. No, they just put it on because all you're going to see is the front anyway. Right. Whereas in the book, he's wearing just normal clothing because he fully intends to get up out of the coffin and move around and stuff. And there's, there would have been no reason for him to put that type of clothing on. You know, they wouldn't have been – if they got to the point where they were rolling him over to check underneath him, it would have been over anyway. So there would have been no reason in the novel for him to have to wear actual funeral clothing in the coffin. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, he is because that's how Pierce is cut. They see him and they're like, wait a minute, something's wrong. And they see the seam of the clothing in the back where it's not actually sewn together. You know, it's just closed together in the back. It's not actual regular clothes. And that's where they're like, hey, something's up here. Arrest that guy. Arrest that guy. And and it's and it's very evident because he got a big old split down the back of his jacket. Yeah. Uh, and you bring up an interesting point that throughout this entire book, Pierce and the movie is this guy who's got everything together this thing is planned to the T. Even when something comes up, he's got the plan for it. They allude to this a lot more in the book. He had no plan for what, how to get back because once he ran across the train, he was covered in soot. And that's the whole reason he needed to change the clothes out with, uh, with Agar's character. Mm-hmm. But in the book, they really allude to how this was going to be the point that he got caught. He's been doing this for a year, everything up to it, and this is, this is what stops him. This one little teeny tiny detail that he had not considered. Well, and I wouldn't even say it was one teeny tiny detail because I think what we get to in the book is a point when when they make these changes to the to the security. They've been planning for a year based on a certain set of security standards for this goal. These security standards suddenly change. In the book, it's because this rich guy loses a bet, doesn't want to pay up, so he ships an empty crate that's supposed to be full of a rare wine rare and wine. then claims mm-hmm. that it was stolen in transit. So the, the train company is like, well... I guess we have to up security because this guy's claiming that he loaded a crate of wine onto the train and it came off the train empty. Whereas we we know as readers that he was trying to swindle this person because he didn't want to give up his wine and that he ended up feeling so bad about it after the fact that he not only paid up the bet, he also ended up because the the, the security guard who was working that train got fired because robbery happened supposedly under his nose. He felt so bad he paid that guy's family for years and years and years, far exceeding the value of the actual wine or what that guy would have made actually keeping his job. Like this guy right. felt really bad about it, but <clears throat> it worked to throw a wrench in the works of the plan. And that's where we get this, where I think we see this shift. Pierce, up to that point, had always been willing to, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll delay, we'll delay, we'll delay, we'll make sure it's right, we'll make sure it's right, we'll make sure it's right. This is the one time it was like, no, we're doing it now. Not waiting mm-hmm. anymore. I'm not, you know, the war's going to be over. The, you know, the whole premise is that they're stealing a shipment of gold used to pay the soldiers for the Crimean War. Well, we're also being told that this war is not going well and that it's very possible that England's going to be pulling out of it. So there may not be many more of these shipments. Or these shipments may start getting smaller. Um, one thing I noticed also, and just a, a small difference, um, in the book, the shipment of gold is supposed to equal about 12,000 pounds. and the movie, they bumped it up to 25,000. Yes. <laughs> not, not quite sure why. Um, not sure why. Yeah, just no. a, a little thing. One of those little changes that we notice uh, between books and movies. The time, the time setting wasn't changed. Like when we see, you know, if a novel was written in the 60s and then made into a movie set in the 90s, we would expect dollar amounts to change progressive with yeah. inflation. 
the book and the movie are set in the same time period. <laughs> so there was really no reason for there to be an increase in the money other than maybe uh, movie-going audiences uh, might think that twelve thousand pounds, well, twelve thousand, whatever. Who cares about twelve yeah, thousand? Not, right. um, not you know, not really thinking about it. I think it comes down to <clears throat> producers and directors and and writers of screenplays are forced, unfortunately, <laughs> to sometimes write down to the lowest common denominator. Um, there was a there's a commentary track on Dogma. I don't know if you've ever listened to Kevin Smith's commentary track on the movie Dogma. I have not, no. Uh, there's a scene. Have you seen – you've seen Dogma, yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene when Loki goes into that house and is standing in front of the air conditioner basking in it talking about how great central air is. You know, no, no – no, like something about no pleasure, no sweetness, no exquisite sin greater than central air. Like he's like all about the central air because he lives in hell. <laughs> in that scene, there's a ribbon tied to the air vent blowing so that you can see that while he's talking about this air conditioner, how great it is, you can visually see that it's on. Mm -hmm. And Kevin Smith in the commentary track is talking about, it's like, anybody with a brain knows that he's standing in front of the vent, he's talking about how great it is, obviously it's on. And nobody in the world ties a ribbon to their air conditioner vent so that they can see when it's on, because guess what? You can always hear when the air conditioner's (laughs) on. You don't need a... a, Nobody ties a ribbon to their vent. But Mm -hmm. he said that was something that had to be added because they they said, you know, hey, there are going to be people who are going to look at that and think, well, that air conditioner's not even on. I don't see any air moving. They needed the visual. They need that visual. And that's, that's what this reminds me of. It's like, okay, they need that dollar figure to be higher so that they think it's worth something more, even though 12,000 pounds in that day was a boat ton of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, just one no, of those that, little things that I was like, okay, I can kind of understand why they may have made that change, but it really feels unnecessary. Yeah. Well, and bef- so before we get too much into the movie, which I think is now definitely in my top five favorite Crichton movies, um, I've got my fact or fiction for you. So let's run through this from all right. this is all this is all based off of the book, because as we've stated, the book is a great historical piece. It feels like. But how true is it actually? So I'm going to break through. I jumped around on some chapters here, mostly in the beginning, because that's when he's really setting up, even talking about the Crimean War and everything like that. Um, In Chapter 8, he talks about the way people lived and rented places to sleep, specifically in the slums in London and in England. And sometimes he mentions sometimes 20 people to a room and piled on each other of both sexes. And uh, he said, or in this case, he used a term uh, for a penny hang. Do you think uh, the penny hang to him was a rope that was stretched between two walls and people would rent it for a penny, usually sailors, and they would sleep over this rope. They would sleep leaning against this rope. And that was the cheap form of a hotel room to rent. True or false, Eric? Uh, Oh, wow. That is hard to imagine. But, you know, knowing the, the limited amount of history that I know, knowing how bad it could be for the for the extreme for the extremely poor. Um, I'm going to say that this is not something that he would have made up completely, so I'll say true. You are correct. This was true. It was usually a room with a rope strung across that people would pay a penny to lay across or rest their neck uh, or heads against a sleep. It, this was also very popular in during the Great Depression in the U.S. The, this was the cheap place to live. And I had a thought, and I did not look it up, but maybe this is where we got hammocks from. Hmm. Huh. 
So, yeah, so I, I didn't look it up, but I thought, oh, the rope across, eventually that becoming a hammock, and you can pile a bunch of those up in a room, and that's, yeah, I could I could see all that that transition. But, yeah, so a penny hang was a real thing. So that was truth in Michael Crichton's writing there. All right. Uh, chapter 9 also states and talks about the amount of dung in the streets of England. And it states that horses deposited six tons of dung on the streets each year uh, when he was discussing what it talks about to keep the streets clean. Do you believe this is true or false? That number did strike me as very, very high when I was reading it. Um, because okay. then he, he said something about six tons per horse. Yeah, it was six tons per horse uh, a per year, year or something like that was what um, it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I only wrote part of the exact quote down, which was six yeah, tons of dung on the streets each year. But you are right. It's each year yeah, per he was, horse. He was talking was. about per horse, and that's what threw me off. I was like, six tons, that's a lot. Yes. <laughs> a ton is 2,000 pounds. Um, that's <laughs> a lot of dung. Now, horses do poop a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. could imagine that much in the streets per year total. But per horse sounds way too high, so I will guess false. This was maybe true. <laughs> so this this I, I, there was not any actual data for the amount of manure that went on in Europe. There was such a thing in 1894 called the Great Horse Manure Crisis of 1894, when there was a news article that stated if things continue on in the way that they are, uh, we will have nine inches of manure on all of our streets because they just couldn't keep up with the processes. Mm-hmm. A, a, a bus in that day was pulled by 12 horses. And this was also a very big problem in New York at that time, before the invention of the automobile. And in New York, I believe what it was, was 12,000 tons a year of horse manure in total. So it is very possible that that six tons of dung each year is a true fact. Wow. It for sure was an issue and was a problem, though, just like he was stating in the book. Wow. Chapter 12 talks also about single women and how important marrying was to the middle and upper class. We were specifically at this point talking about Trent, his daughter, and everything. So he stated, this was his fact, in 1851, there was 2,765,000 single women that were of the marrying age but not married. True or false? Hmm. Again, the number seems high. But based on the amount of research it seems that he's done, I I don't think he's pulling numbers out of a hat. So um, I'll go true. You are correct. All right. 1851 was the second—1841 was the first largest um, uh, counting of people in Europe. 1851 was the next biggest census. So he took data from the 1851 census of England. And according to documents, um, around 1850, more than a quarter of the female population of the U.K. between 20 and 45 was unmarried and finding it increasingly difficult uh, to get married. That number does equate to about 2.7 million women that were unmarriable, and this was called the— Great uh, surplus was what it was. It was there. There was just there was all of these women. We had the same problem after World War II when so many men died during war. Mm-hmm. That there was all of a sudden just, just this huge amount. And so these women eventually in the early 1900s um, were a large part of the workforce because there were so many of them they couldn't get married, so they went on to be working. So yes, so his 2.7 million is an extremely accurate number. Wow. All right. All right. Now, chapter 13, mm-hmm. we have. The escape of Willie from prison, from Newgate Prison. Ah. This happened during the hanging of Emma Barnes on August 28, 1854. Was the hanging of Emma Barnes on August 28, 1854 true or false? Oh, 
Um, <clears throat> you know what? At several points while reading and watching this, I thought to look this up and see if it was a real thing. And all of those times, I either got uh, distracted by the movie or the book or something else and did not look it up. Um, again, with the amount of research he does, it's it's hard for me to believe that he just made it up. However, it was also necessary for the story. And if there weren't any hangings or anything that would have drawn enough attention away to affect a prison escape, he would have had to make it up. So I will go out on a limb and say that it was false, made up for this story. You are correct. <laughs> this was false. Hangings did occur all the way up until 1863 as a public event outside of Newgate Prison. The hanging of Emma Barnes is completely fictional, though. There is a documented historical list of every hanging that happened at Newgate Prison. There were only three hangings that happened in 1854. All three hangings were on April 9th for three men who murdered a gentleman by the name of Thomas Bateson. So there were only three hangings in all of 1854, and it was on April 9th. There is no references anywhere with Newgate Prison to an Emma Barnes ever being hung or an Emma Barnes that was an axe murderess. All right. All right. He needed, he needed a hanging for the story. Thought he'd make it a good one. Yes. <laughs> now, is Newgate Prison a real place that was unescapable? True or false? <laughs> um, well, I think you gave away that it was a real place based on your previous yes. facts. <laughs> so yes. I'll say yes on the, the real place part. Um, as far as it being considered inescapable, um, I think – I want to say yes, I believe that's true because uh, what typically happens is they build these new prisons and they're considered inescapable until the first person escapes. And then they're like, oh. So um, I'm going to say that it was a prison that was considered inescapable until one or two people managed to escape it. Which honestly, that's every prison, right? Every prison is inescapable <laughs> until somebody does. So. Exactly. <laughs> and you are correct. And very interestingly, there was a gentleman by the name of Jack Shepard who escaped, uh, he escaped from prisons three different times, and Newgate was a prison he escaped from. If you read his accounts of all his escapes, they, there is an extreme similarity to what Crichton described as how Willie escaped. So I do believe he took Jack Shepard's real escapes and used them in the Clean Willie character. Oh, okay. Because there's a very close in how they escape the climbing of the wall. There is no reference to the walls having the spikes at the top and everything like they talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. But, yes, it was uh, inescapable until it happened. And I just thought it was very interesting when I read about Jack Shepard that it sounded just like Clean Willie's escape. Yeah. Nice. Speaking of those those barrels with spikes on the top of the walls, I had a very hard time, for some reason, imagining them. You know, I was just imagining these, I guess, I, I was thinking more in the terms of, like, larger barrels with smaller spikes and so I, I i wasn't really understanding what he was trying to come across until the movie and i was like oh yeah <laughs> that no, makes that sense was, yes okay that would I be hard to get over poorly described in the book because i just could not imagine it i was doing like you i was thinking of a 50 gallon barrel drum with spikes on it and i'm like well that's just really odd but i guess if that's the top of it that would be hard to I mean, yeah, uh, would be from hard a wall to climb, to climb over, over. it'd be kind of slippery mm -hmm. spikes on it yeah okay but yeah something very different in the movie than what i imagined in the book <laughs> yeah when they describe him grabbing onto the spikes and cutting his hand but hanging on anyway and i'm like but 
I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this and it's just not working. And then when I see the movie, I'm like, okay, they're talking. It's more like a pole with large, sharp blades sticking out of it. And the only way to get over it, you're going to get poked by these blades. If you try to grab the blades, they're sharp. They're going to cut you. And the, the bar spins so that you can't get purchase on it because as soon as you pull on it, you know, as soon as you put your weight on it, it rolls down. So and mm-hmm. it's cutting your hand. So unless you've got a super grip and are willing to sacrifice your palms for it, which is exactly what Willie does, because in the story he was a chimney sweeps apprentice and they described the fact that homeowners didn't want to give up warmth for one second longer than they had to so even when they knew there was going to be a child climbing into their chimney to clean it they still kept the hearth burning up until the last moment they possibly could meaning the walls were hot right and they talked about these kids basically losing all sensation in the palms of their hands because they're using their hands to shimmy up and down the chimneys on these hot hot stones burning their the the skin of their hands i'm just like mm-hmm. wow no a lot of the descriptions of the book really bring you to the plight of uh what people would do for work and mm-hmm. child labor laws and everything and they even talk about in the beginning of the book oh, he yes. michael Crichton talks about the hours and everything like that so it again a fascinating thing uh, my last thing for you and i'm just going to give this away to you when Michael Crying gets so specific with names of things, just like with uh, Emma Barnes and her hanging, I really wonder, like, is that a real thing? So after Clean Willie escapes from prison, they he's he's bleeding, he's half dead and everything, so mm-hmm. they give him a lot of things. One of the things was Burroughs and Welcome Beef and Iron Wine for sustenance, and then another one was Carter's Little Nerve Pills for pain. And they were so specific, I had to look them up, and sure enough, they are legitimate items in the mid to late to 18 hundreds that were used for like an over-the-counter remedy for whatever ails you type of thing. Gotcha. So those were those were Carter's little nerve pills and Burroughs and Welcome's beef and iron wine were real things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, awesome. so again, this for the most part, I mean, there was only one thing that I could truly say was false was the hanging. The rest were yeah, somewhat accurate, even if it wasn't you know six tons uh, during the year of dung. They, Michael Crichton used very real stuff, and that's what makes this book feel like a great historical novel. I would tell you to read it because listening to it is tough. Only for all these details, you're going to want to reread certain things, and it's just a little hard to rewind uh, You know, when you're listening to something on audiobook. But uh, amazing book. And that brings us to the movie, which is a great action, caper, kind of feel-good, fun movie. It's completely different and completely wonderful at the same time. Yes. Um, You do get the same basic story, obviously. But the feel of it is quite a bit different, as you said. Instead of a uh, you know somewhat historical novel that uh, you know gets gets kind of a true crime feel to it, the movie is is, is a caper flick, <clears throat> and it's very well done for what it is. I mean, obviously, you've got some top notch acting in here. You've got Sean Connery, you've got Donald Sutherland, um, Leslie Ann Down. I don't know that I've seen her in anything else, but she was fantastic in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you really do have some 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 top notch acting in this film. And uh, again, we have Crichton himself writing the screenplay and directing it. So he knows his story and he knows what he wants to get across. Um, and he still manages to, to pull it off without making it feel like he's dragging you through the pages of a book. It's, it, it's, a, it's a good, fun movie. It really is. 
It is, and it's uh, right from the beginning, and it's great to see. I mean, this is 1979, so we have both Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland, who Sutherland's been doing movies and TV stuff since 1962, and Connery since 54. He's already been in a couple of Bond movies. So these are relatively bigger names in Hollywood, so this is kind of a big production at that time. It's so wonderful today, though, looking back almost 40 years later, uh, to see this movie with these characters that you know from something totally different that just came out a few years ago, the people that are still alive, uh, seeing them as young people. I truly loved Donald Sutherland's Agar in this. Uh, My favorite, favorite scene of this whole entire movie is when Agar is practicing the run to open (laughs) up the cabinet to make the wax things the key, and, and Pierce is sitting there timing him. It's it's almost like an animated faces he makes, and it's it's somewhat funny, comical the way he's running, his beard and everything. I was like, I, I could picture <laughs> that entire scene. It, that was my favorite scene of this whole movie, actually. Yeah, uh, that was fantastic, and it was taken straight from the book. I mean, that scene did occur in the book, but it didn't take on the the slightly comic tone that it got in the film. You know, it was right. a, a welcome little bit of um, you know, yeah, it was still part of their planning. It was still necessary. He was literally practicing the job he was about to do and needed to know, okay, there's this many steps up to the door, there's this many steps down. When I come back, I need to go. They're trying to get the timing down. I need to be able to do this in this amount of time, and if I can't do that, then we're, we're done for. And in the movie, they, they, they make it this, this slightly, because he's constantly talking about, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, and Pierce is like, yes, you can. And yes, you can. Uh, mm-hmm. then he, he pushes him to the point of, of being able to do it, and then he's like, I love Agar's like, I always knew I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was was just, it was a great scene. And another little tiny change here, the time was different because in the movie it was 72 seconds, correct? I believe so. That he was going for, and it was 60-something seconds in the book. Uh, I reread some of it just before we did this. Yeah, they gave him a little bit more time. Gave him a little bit more time, but whatever. You know, that's just us being nitpicky because we're doing this. It wasn't nearly as egregious as the change in the countdown timer in Andromeda Strain. All three versions. All three (laughs) versions of it, yes. No, not near. Not near. This, This was... That's what that's what makes this an amazing movie is they took all of the good action part of piecing this together and getting the keys and they kept very much so to the book. Uh, yeah, they did have to cut out some a main character, but the scenes that main character were in were given to other characters so you didn't lose any of that translation. Mm-hmm. I do love the cut scenes where they're just laying the key into the box. So that's like that's each uh, chapter in the book. You know, here's the first key and the second key and then the third and the fourth key and. Mm-hmm. I really liked how they did that in the movie. What's interesting about this movie, uh, when I was doing some research on it, uh, I did not realize that in 1963 there was also a train robbery that was for something like $2 million that happened in London. And so when this was released in England, it was the film was titled The First Great Train Robbery to distance it from the robbery that had just happened in 1963, <laughs> which was also a great train robbery according to the British press. Uh-huh. So there are two different ones. So if anybody's Googling this or looking it up, um, I did a lot of research on the proceedings and the criminal court stuff. You actually have to search this online as the great gold robbery, not to the great train robbery, to find the actual historical references from 1855. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, it did have a little bit of a different title in England, only because uh, they would have gotten confused with, uh, again, what is going on with England and your trains being robbed. But apparently this (laughs) is uh, more often than not. (laughs) And every time it happens, it's great. What's going on with that? Right. Yeah, they pull it off. So I um, – 
I, we both talked a little bit beforehand of the biggest scene that changed. Thank God it changed. <laughs> uh, was there anything that you thought was missing from this movie, though, uh, that was in the book? Like, Was there anything you felt like, ah, I really wish this would have been in there at all? Um, not really, no. I, I, there were, you know, like I said, the scenes that we... Um, I think the, there was one scene that I thought was very fun in the book that we didn't get in the movie at all because they, they kind of cut that whole bit. The uh, Miriam's visit to Chubb safes. Yes. When she goes to, because they, they find out that the safe's been pulled off the train for inspection and they're like, we just finished making the keys. Like if they change the locks, we've got to get on the, we've got to start over basically. So we need to find out why these safes are in. And if, if the locks have anything to do, because if they're changing the hinges or the, you know, this, that, there's a lot of things they could be doing to these safes that would not affect their plan. But if it's the locks, they need to know about it because they can't pull all this off, show up with keys that don't fit in the locks anymore. So right. they send Miriam to the Chubb factory to, you know, she she's playing this part of this woman who wants to buy safes because somebody in her neighborhood got robbed. And so she needs a safe right now because otherwise. And so she's looking at these safes saying, oh, no, that's not going to do. That's not going to do. Do you have anything bigger? I need something bigger. And finally, the guy's like, well, you know, this is a where this isn't a warehouse. This is a factory. I mean, but I can show you some of the stuff that's being worked on. And they go back in the back and he shows her a couple of safes. And then she says she sees the actual safes in the corner like those ones. That's the size I need. What are they? Why are they here? Are they broken? Is there something wrong with them? And he explains that, nope, it's just the bolts that they use to bolt them down to the floor of the train have to be replaced every now and then because of the vibration of the train. And that's what's happen is they're just replacing the bolts on the bottom of the of the safe mm -hmm. and so she, then she makes a big show of okay well, i'll take one of those and they're like well we have to build it for you it'll be a couple of weeks she's like by then the everything will be gone out of my everything will be stolen by that time <laughs> yes and then it's just this huge thing and she storms <clears throat> off because she got the information she wanted so that that would have been a fun scene because miriam's character is great and i wish i could remember exactly how michael Crichton describes actors in the day but actors were the low lice like they pretty much were shysters and scam artists is what they were and that's and she was an actress mm -hmm. uh so she obviously <clears throat> did play acting and everything like that but um so she has all these great characters that she plays in the book and she does a bunch of them in the movies too yep. uh, in the movie too uh, and, in fact, and so, so much one fun more, to see. And that was another character yeah <laughs> about to allude to when we were talking about the other big scene change <sighs> so in the book henry fowler's character he's the one that keeps the key around his neck mm -hmm. contracts syphilis and because of that the big rumor of the day is you have to have sex with a virgin and you'll feel better and it'll heal you and everything and unfortunately in that time which kind of explains uh, why you have an epidemic of syphilis right <laughs> when having sex is what's supposed to cure it and they're just spreading it and and, uh, you know, at that time, and historically, it's accurate, but Crichton writes about how he has intercourse with a 12-year-old, presumably virgin prostitute, um, which in Victorian times, the age of consent for females was 12. So this, to them, was a very perfectly normal thing. Thank God they changed that in the movie, though. Yes. Yeah, I, I was, every time it was it was coming up, and I'm like, okay, I know they've got to get Fowler's key. Are they gonna? Are they going to do it the same way? Are they going to... Uh, they, they can't, can they? I mean, they really can't. Um, and no, they did not. Uh, instead, they get Miriam to play just a regular, ordinary uh, prostitute. <laughs> prostitute, um, a high-class prostitute. Yeah, yes. high-class one, but just a, your average, everyday prostitute. And she is to seduce him just long enough to get him to take the key off, let Agar make the copy, put it back, and then uh, basically pulls the fire alarm. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's I did like that this turned into a um, what went from a very awkward in 
the book and just a horrible thing to think about to this great comic effect because you do have Fowler um, being brought there by Pierce's character and then Pierce makes this pretend like the cops are coming and like yeah. Pierce completely <laughs> set up this whole brothel pretty much and he had control of it and so then he runs out with Fowler real quick to get him away from the cops because Fowler can't be seen he can't be known that he visits uh, you know prostitutes or anything like that so it turned into this great little comical thing that happened and uh, I am very okay with the way this scene turned out <laughs> yes yes uh, definitely far better than the book maybe less historically accurate but yeah that scene and uh, that was the one time when listening to the audiobook that it it seemed worse even than when I read it in the book when, when I read it in the book I was yes. like ooh but when I was listening to a, <laughs> a British man describe it to me I was like oh just, god no yeah cuz they, they don't it's not like they go into tons of detail but it's just enough detail that you just don't want to hear that or be reading that or anything like that but unfortunately true to the time so yeah that was a that was the biggest change I cannot say that I necessarily missed anything um, from the book, you are right. It would have been neat just to see some more of Miriam's characters, but they had so much that was in there. Uh, even to the fact that the uh, the daughter that he's dating, he runs into again in the gardens. Yes, uh, and he quickly says, "Oh, I got married." I mean, he doesn't explain it as much in the book. And yeah, in the, in the book, he says he got engaged, that he was betrothed at that point, not married. But the, you know, the general gist of it is the same: is that he ran off and got married to somebody else, and so they're like, "Oh, well, whatever." Yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, and uh, and again, in the end, this movie has just got this fun uh, ending to it, and you you get away, and it's the same thing. Miriam is dressed up, and she well, let's go back to there. He's in court, mm-hmm. and it's the same line in both. And I I read through. Um, if anybody ever wants to look it up, the proceedings of the old Bailey which the Old Bailey was the Central Criminal Court in London back in that day, they do have many of those online. And so I found the transcripts from when Ed- Edgar was uh, in court. I couldn't find anything of Pierce's yet, though, because I really wanted to know, just because it's a great line, the court system asks Pierce, why did you do this? And they have this huge, long description. Yeah, it's, and- it's this whole big thing where he's like, laws are meant to create order, and the, laws are, you oh. know, the judge is going off on this diatribe about why laws are important and how civilized society is supposed to work, and why, sir, then would you do this? I don't understand the question. And then he asks him again, yeah, because, you know, why would you do this? And it was, I wanted the money. And in the movie, this gets a laughter out of everybody that's in the courtroom. And he is like this hero when he's walking away and he's chained up and he's going to prison. People are cheering for him. <laughs> so he's got this like Robin Hood type feel. And then Miriam's character dressed up as an old lady or um, an old bag lady or something uh, makes out with him and slips him a key in his mouth. And he makes his great escape with Agar driving the carriage with, away. With Agar driving and him hanging out the back, waving at the crowd. Bye guys. I'm taking Bye, guys. off. Yes. In the book he was a little bit more uh, appropriate about his escape nobody knew he escaped until he didn't they show up where he was guards. supposed to be and they're like oh wait a minute and then people start and then people remembered oh yeah the guy driving the vehicle that was supposed to take him away had a scar on his forehead and so yes. again we have barlow but yeah they, they definitely made it a lot more 
uh, <laughs> upbeat, that ending in the movie when he's escaping and everybody's cheering for him like, yay, he got away. We're, we're so happy that this murderer got away. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> no. You have, to, no. you have to go back and think, wait, no, he's not a good guy. Dang it. Yeah, It, it, made, it made for a happy ending. And um, because of that, I love both of these for what they are. The book is more history and life and times in the 1850s. And the movie is more the caper. But it's a really fun one. Like, I would sit and watch this again with my parents or something like that, you know, um, because it is a it, a good Ocean's Eleven type. Uh, this is how we rob a train movie. Uh, one of the things that that was interesting, I did look up. Uh, he did do all of his own stunts, uh, Sean Connery, on top mm-hmm. of the train. Oh, right on. Uh, so he did do all of that running. Supposedly, uh, the train was only supposed to be going 35 miles an hour, but the conductor guy was figuring the miles per hour by uh, counting things going by, and Connery was certain that it was going faster, and they did find out that it was going closer to 50 miles per hour while he was on it. Um, I'm trying to find my reference Uh, that I had for that. Oh, yes. A helicopter pilot later confirmed Connery's suspicion. The the train was traveling at over 55 miles an hour is what it was uh, instead of the 35 like it should have been. The train driver was counting telegraph poles to measure the speed and was doing it inaccurately. Uh, but, you know, this is the guy that played Bond a couple of times already, so he's used to doing a few stunts and rolling around. So. Which, that does bring me up to one, one other change between the book and movie that I thought was notable. Mm-hmm. And it really speaks to what I was saying earlier about Pierce's character wanting to get this done now. He'd been so patient up to this point, but now it was like, no, it has to be now. When he realizes that he's going to have to do this whole bit of climbing over the train... He convinces Agar that he's been mountaineering with this famous mountaineer and that he knows how to do all this, when in reality, he doesn't at all. He has no clue. And in fact, he thinks he's going to be okay based on his misinterpretation of some bad science of the time. (laughs) He thinks that they have this thing called railway sway. When these two trains are passing close together, they tend to suck into each other. And we now know that it's due to the the air pressure, the same effect that uh, a wing has when on an airplane to, to make you fly and so they determined that it wasn't that they were attracted to each other or that each train was creating its own vacuum force or gravity to the train which is what they originally thought mm-hmm. it was just that the air movement was creating this vacuum in between that was that was sucking them to each other but it was actually sucking them both to a central point not to each other per se he was right, counting on this effect, thinking that, oh, well, well, the train's moving. It's going to be exerting a force on me, which is going to keep me pinned down to the train. I, I can't possibly fly off this train. No, and that's what the bad science. He thought it was this old little gravity thing, so he would be on top of that train and wouldn't fall off or anything like that. Uh, so by the sheer uh, luck of the gods or whatever, he <laughs> survives <laughs> when he really shouldn't have. Yeah, and they, they, they go to pains to also explain that he also didn't necessarily think that if he did fall off the train, that he'd be dead from it. It wasn't a guaranteed because they didn't really know. They, they'd known that, oh, people fall off trains all the time when they're going 10, 15 miles an hour or whatever. Sometimes they get hurt, sometimes they don't. just depends on how you land. Right. They didn't realize yeah, roll when the, you land. You'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't realize the exponential difference it makes as you, as you gain speed. Um, and he should have known, you know, because of the, the guy he hired to uh, basically die for the, for the storyline at the beginning. For the information, yeah. But uh, um, whose name, they, I, I, I didn't jot down the name, I, I don't remember, but they did bring that character up again, even though they knew he was dead. 
they mm-hmm. used him in that secondary Greenwich storyline to be one of the people who was in on the new lay in Greenwich to, to spread Greenwich. this story around the underworld so that if criminals believed that this was happening, then the cops would definitely believe this was happening. That it was going to happen. Um, yep. And they used his name again and yeah, even Agar was like, isn't he dead? <laughs> yeah, but they don't all know that. <laughs> they don't know that. They <laughs> it's basically, got a body yeah, it's basically yeah. how it came yep. down. Um, one thing that really struck me about the the history behind uh, behind the book, especially Victorian sensibilities, were so <laughs> weird. I mean, here you have the age of consent is twelve. Oh, right. Ooh, but yeah. at one point he says, "Damn," and then oh, I'm so sorry for my language. <laughs> right. The, it, they, the 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 moral compass seems so skewed on what was wrong and right. You know, even the. The child labor and everything, sending a kid up a burning, you know, chimney and stuff like that. It, it was kind of an eye opener. Just you know, sometimes you over romanticize or fantasize uh, history yeah. when you're watching a movie, and the you good don't old realize days that effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so in the end, that's why I would say this book is a great book to read because for the most part, when it's talking about life in the 1850s in England, it is fairly accurate. Uh, and then the movie is just a great fun. I, again, love Donald Sutherland's character in this movie and truly enjoyed it. I think that Michael Crichton probably had a great time being able to make a fun movie out of this book that he had written years earlier. So I, I think he probably truly enjoyed what came about this way. All right. uh, yeah, I, I definitely could not agree more. Um, both the book and the movie are phenomenal. They managed to stay very close to each other while still providing different experiences. I think mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the best way I can describe it is that, yes, you get the same story. It's very true to the story. But it's a much different experience reading the book than watching the movie. It's not one that I could say, ah, pick one and you'll be fine. No, do both. Read the book both. and watch the mm-hmm. movie. Uh, and it doesn't really matter which order you do it in. Um, <clears throat> I, I happened the way I did it was uh, the same way I did with uh, Terminal Man. I read the book, and then I watched the movie, then I listened to the audiobook. Um, I did that specifically you know, so that I would have my, my differences fresh in my mind for the discussion. Not saying that right. that's the best way to do it or the only way to do it, just saying that's how I did it. Um, but I would definitely say that you could go either direction with this. Most of the time, I usually encourage people to watch a movie first and then read the book if they're both available at the same time. Because mm-hmm. you can enjoy the movie and then enjoy the book even more without being disappointed in the movie. Whereas sometimes when you read a book and then watch the movie, you can be disappointed in what's missing instead of just enjoying the movie. This one, I don't think uh, I don't think that effect takes hold. I think you can read the book and then watch the movie and not be disappointed. No, I, I completely agree. And this would be the first time that I can say so far of our podcast that I truly enjoyed and w- both book and movie. You know, with Andromeda Strain, I enjoyed the book more. Uh, with uh, Case of Need, I actually, at Afterthought, enjoyed the movie more. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Terminal Man, I didn't enjoy either one very much. But in this case, uh, both of these are great in their own right and could be consumed uh, either way. Absolutely, yes. Um, There was one other small, what I call a question mark difference that we didn't discuss. I don't know if you you caught this or not. Um, This is the, you know, we always, because we're nitpickers and we like to, (laughs) we want to know why there's changes and and we can guess at certain things, you know, with the money, for example. Okay, well, a movie audience might not think that 12,000 is enough, so they change it. Sure. Um, 
This is one of those question marks. You had a small one. Uh, I, I don't think we Ooh. talked about on air, which we should bring up. Um, yes. It's even smaller than mine, so I'll, I'll do mine, <laughs> and then you can do yours. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> with mine, we have the scene with the with the dog fighting, which I'm glad. Uh, it's another thing in the movie, uh, the the book. There was this whole scene of him going to find this fighting dog, so that he had some something to talk to to Trent about. Um, it, he didn't end up even really needing to use that as much. That whole scene with the maid dog, it didn't even really come about to anything. Like, you never see n- none of that really comes into play <laughs> ever again no. because because he finds out the daughter's available and he, he works that angle instead. Right. But in the book, he's got this other angle first before he finds out about the daughter. And then it's like, okay, well, now I can change tax. I can move over to this. Um, but in the in the movie, we do still have the, the dog, the ratting fight, which you know, is the tamest of the animal sports <laughs> that were going on in Victoria in England. While still illegal, it was still happening with quite, you know, with very regularly. And uh, I'm sure it was not something that was a high priority for them to break up. Um, but they've got these dogs where they put them in a pit with a bunch of rats and they have to try to kill all the rats in a certain amount of time. It's disgusting, but it happens. But my question mark is, why in the book does Trent have bulldogs? And in the movie, they've changed it to, to terriers. I, you know, I, interesting. That was my, my, my little question mark change. Why? It's an English bulldog. Like, that's what they're known for. <laughs> Why wouldn't he have a bulldog? Huh. But they changed it to terriers in the film. I don't know if maybe terriers are, you know, maybe they're easier to work with on film. Maybe they didn't have good trainers at the time. Maybe that's just what was available. They said, hey, we need some dogs. And the guy brought over and said, here's what I got. All right, I'll that's take those. Maybe, yeah. Interesting. So I, I did not notice that. I'm not a dog person. I didn't even realize, but uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. Uh, like you said, that probably has something to do with dogs that are available or training or working with or whatever version of PETA you had back then or something. But. <laughs> right. So if out there somewhere you know the reason that they use terriers in the film instead of the bulldogs that were written in the book, uh, please let us know. You can email us at info at CrichtonCast.com. You can go to CrichtonCast.com and just comment on this episode. You can visit our Twitter or follow us on Twitter at CrichtonCast. I think you're sensing a theme here. Uh, We're Mm -hmm. also on Facebook at CrichtonCast. Uh, Very, very easy to find us. Let us know if you know any of these, uh, the reasons for these little question mark changes that we always find. We'd love to hear it. Uh, definitely, and mine is even more trivial than yours. I was really looking for you know the numbers, the things like that, and mine is Trent's house in the book is seventeen, and in the movie it's seven. Uh, so mine has no bearing him. at all. Probably just the one fell off of the pillar in the movie, and that's <laughs> it. Yours is much more fascinating because why you'd use two totally different types of dogs uh, would interest me. So uh, so yeah, we're gonna go with yours, and if you have an answer or you have a theory on it, yeah. Definitely, please let us know. All right. Uh, But yeah, so long story short, watch this movie, read this book. They're both fantastic. You'll learn a little bit. And as we pointed out, a lot of the stuff you learn is actually true. Actually true. Yes. So thank you very much for listening. And we hope you will keep on checking us out uh, through Crichton Cast, all the places that Eric mentioned that you could find us.